When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard Welcome once again to Strange Planet. Now, when I got my copy of the UFO Hotspot Compendium in the mail, it reminded me of uh, a book I have. It's my wife gave it to me because she knows I'm a baseball nut, and it's a travel guide to baseball, like 200 baseball vacations across America. Wow. You get to visit great major league ballparks and some wonderful historic minor league baseball parks. And it's it's terrific. And I've taken the boys on road trips. And here we have the latest from Craig Campobasso, the UFO hotspot compendium. Craig is a casting director, award-winning filmmaker. He directed and wrote and produced the short film Stranger at the Pentagon, which we've talked about before, which was adapted from the popular UFO book authored by the late Dr. Frank E. Stranges. And uh, he's also written the autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga. I I am Thyron and the extraterrestrial species almanac. And again, the latest, the UFO hotspot compendium. Craig Campobasso, welcome back. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me back. So as I say, this is a, this is a kind of a, a bucket list uh, UFO destination guide. It's terrific. I don't, no one's ever done anything like this to my knowledge. How Nobody, I believe, has done anything like that. Um, when they approached me to write it a couple of years ago, that's what we were calling it, the UFO bucket list, right? But none of us really liked that name. So so as we were getting closer to publication, we kept going through names and the publisher came up with the UFO hotspot, but it needed another word. So my contribution was compendium. And they came up with the great subtitle, All the Places to Visit Before You Die or Are Abducted. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a great uh, title and a great concept for a book. And when you say when they approach you, you mean MUFON. So just kind of tell us a little bit how this this came together and and so forth. Sure. So uh, the E.T. Species Almanac is a MUFON book. So that was my first book for MUFON. And Red Wheel Wiser, it's an imprint of uh, the Red Wheel Wiser uh, publication. And then when MUFON and Red Wheel came to me about writing this book, and I said, wow, that's a great idea for a book. And I said, how are we going to go about that? And the head of MUFON said, well, I'll send out uh, queries to all of my MUFON state directors to nominate their favorite hotspots. And so we got all of those, we compiled them. Of course, I've been going on a lot of these little UFO hotspot trips myself over all the years and going to a lot of MUFON uh, places where they had already investigated uh, 
and and went with the actual real abductees to have them take me through uh, what their whole uh, procedure was. And one of those such cases, um, it happened at, uh, at the uh, Cape Fear and then on the river and then on the and then they got back in the car uh, after this missing time, ran home. They're back, you know, a lot of people's backyards back there are forest. Right. And that just scares me because I'm like, Bigfoots and stuff can be in your backyard, right? Literally. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, he's taking us through the back and he's saying, and when we got home, they were walking out of the forest towards us as we were running into the house, right? And I was just getting the chills because I could hear things crunching. (laughs) Yeah, it was dusk. So it was just getting dark and I could hear things crunching in there. And so I had a Minolta camera and I just kept snapping, right? Over and over and over and over again, just see what I got. And the next morning I'm laying in the safety of my hotel room and I'm going through the pictures and I literally caught one of the extraterrestrials on camera. And the very next photograph was all ectoplasm, but coming down from the trees like drapes of it that curled on the bottom. Like Spanish moss. Exactly, exactly. So so I've been around and, and experienced a lot of these kinds of things, seen many a UFO uh, myself. And I just love the idea of this book. And I knew some of the places that weren't nominated that weren't really in the public side that I wanted to really delve into, like the Bradshaw Ranch, and yes. uh, which is outside of Sedona. Yeah, I want to ask um, you about that in a moment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to dig it. You're going to dig it. And my favorite, my favorite, I, I have many favorite spots, but I am really have an affinity towards giant rock and the Integratron. Mm-hmm. And so I have studied that because one of the things I've studied since I was 26 are all of the contactees that were human that were coming in the fifties and sixties. Right. And, and giant rock and George Van Tassel was a big part of that. So. Right. Just outside Palm Springs. Yes. Um, I want to take a little detour, though, before we check in with the Bradshaw Ranch and, and Giant Rock. And, and that is the story that you tell in the book. And it's, I mean, I love stories of serendipity and synchronicity. And, yeah. um, you know, you've always wondered, you know, why am I so fascinated? Here you are, you know, you're a filmmaker, you're a casting director. Why am I so interested in, you know, UFOs and abductions? And uh, you were on this journey to look for your biological father. And Correct. Tell me how all of those worlds kind of came together for you. It, I, my mom told me when I was 12 that my father was my stepfather and that I had a biological father, but she didn't know much about him. They, uh, they had had a brief affair, shall we say, and I came into being and she found out that he was married and so she put it into it. But she really wanted me, and in those times, it was really hard for a woman to have 
a baby out of wedlock. So she literally was called every name in the book, abort that thing, you know, go, go have it in another state, come back when you're skinny, all of that. And she fought them all and said, no, I want the, this is my child. I love, I, I really want this child. So my mother and I had a great bond and um, she was extremely spiritual woman, although she was not religious, which, which really for me, I think contributed to a, a lot of uh, who I am as well. Although she did give me some kind of a religious upbringing because she felt that, you know, children need that. So um, anyway, I just never could find him. All I had was his name. That was it. And, um, and then I'm writing the E.T. Species Almanac and I get a phone call from a woman in Canada. She goes, I'm your fourth or fifth cousin. I'm a real genealogist. And I would like to ask you some questions. We're related on your mother's father's side. And I said, great. So I did that. I hooked her up with two of my mother's sisters who were into this. And I said, hey, can you find my biological father? And she goes, yeah, I can find anyone. Um, and she found it through my DNA, which was already in the system. And uh, she called me and said, he passed away in 2006. And this is where he's buried. So I went there the very next morning. I went up to the front desk and I said, do you have a name and phone number of anybody who called when this man died and was brought here to be buried? And she looked and she goes, yes, I do. I have a name, but I don't have a number. I said, great, I'll take the name. I went and I visited his crypt. And, um, and ironically, it's Forrest Lawn directly across from Warner Brothers, where he would later work as the head of... Um, construction for film and TV after the Air Force, right? Wow. So uh, anyway, I come home. I look this man up, a different last name than him. He lives around the corner from me, of course. Write him a letter because all I had was an address. I get a call from his son, and he said, you know, normally we would think this is super weird, but you're a doppelganger for Fred. Mm -hmm. And um, and I said, oh, was your dad a good friend of his? And he goes, no, it's his half brother. I went, oh, so you're my cousin. And he goes, yeah. And of course, he works at Disney, right? Mm. And uh, <laughs> and so and my uncle ran the motion picture home for years, and I was in the motion picture home many times wow. when he was in there. I mean, it's just so strange how all this works. And he's lived around the corner from me with his wife all the time I've lived out here. Oh, I but it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. So I go out to dinner with my new found uncle and cousin. And uh, my uncle's just like the whole time just like this. He's like, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. You look so much like him. You're his exact height. You, your mannerisms are like him. You're, you know, he goes, this is so amazing to have a piece of my brother here and wow. all of that. And I said, well, just tell me everything about him. That's all I really want to know. And by the way, I don't have any pictures. I don't even know what he looks like. And he goes, don't worry. We'll, we'll give you all of those. And so he starts to tell me about his life. And he says, um, he really, uh, he wanted to go into the Air Force, but he was too young. So my mom had to sign a piece of paper for him to go into the Air Guard. 
And when he was 18, they put him in the Air Force. And then as an afterthought, he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, he was in that Project Blue Book. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, by the and way. I'm like, I know. Oh, and by the way, and I said, do you know what that is? And he's like, well, kind of. He goes, he goes, my two of my sons, including the one sitting next to you, totally are into UFOs. And they tried to drag stuff out of him over the years. And all he would say is, yes, some people say they exist. That's all he would ever say, right? So um, I was like, man, if he was alive, I would have drug it out of him. <laughs> uh, what was he doing with Blue Book? An investigator? So, no, he was young. He would have been in his early 20s because he went, he went right in at 18. Uh, my uncle believes that he typed up the reports and that he was probably a paper pusher for a general or something like that. But he moved around and was stationed in different uh, places. And I, you know, and, and me doing the Valiant Thor story, I'm like, he was there during that time. I'm like, did he type that up? Wow. Would that have just been wild? I mean, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've checked with John Greenwald, with everyone I can that has papers to see if his name comes up, because sometimes they would put the first initial and the last name. Right. Right. Of whoever typed it up. And on some of the bl uh, Blue Book reports I've seen, it, it, they are signed like that as well. So anyway, I can't tell you how much that blew my mind. But then when he left the Air Force to come here, he ends up becoming the head of construction at Warner Brothers, just like me, me in the film business, me in the UFO business. I do it for MUFON. He did it for Blue Book. It's like in your DNA, man. It's uh, it, I, I never in a million years would have ever expected that outcome. I so you must be. Are you writing the screenplay for that yet? Well, I should be. Now I do have some people who are pretty high up in the military, and I have his discharge papers. And they say that the numbers that are on his papers, they had never seen before and they don't know what they mean. <laughs> like and they're trying, they're trying to find out what they mean, but they can't. They keep coming up uh, empty handed. So that's, that's tantalizing. <laughs> that is so it is very tantalizing. So. But the cool thing is, is my uncle found his dog tags and gave them to me. So I, I have that. And of course, now I have, you know, uh, pictures and all of that good stuff. So I put a, I dedicated the E.T. Almanac to him and the, I put his air guard picture in there because I, 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 nobody has any pictures of him from the Air Force. Craig, that's a fascinating story. Yeah. Uh why don't we take a time out, come back and, and discuss further the UFO hotspot compendium. Craig Campobasso, back with more of our conversation right after these. The truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. 
And we're back with Craig Campabasso, the UFO Hotspot Compendium. So if you're, you're interested in a, um, a wonderful road trip, uh, well, you wouldn't be able to do it in one leg. It's going to take you quite <laughs> a, a while. Time. But uh, just like my baseball vacation book, just work your way. Yes. You know, pick pick a few destinations and uh, do it strategically. Like, you know, if, yes. you can, if you go to the Southwest, you can you can knock a bunch of them off, you know, obviously, yeah. because those are the hot spots. Arizona, New Mexico, yes. you know, Aurora, Texas. Um, yes. And then work your way into the Yucca Valley, which is where we'll begin uh, with the uh, the George, or sorry, the uh, Giant Rock um, with George Van Tassel and, uh, you know, visitations from the Venusians and, you know, build this revitalization building. Just for those not familiar, give us the kind of, just kind of a thumbnail sketch. Sure. Of, uh, our first uh, destination. I, I started hearing about this place, the Integratron, from a lot of people who visited it. It visited it. That sounds weird. Can't even say that. Visited it. And uh, they would tell me that they would see UFOs. They would see all these things. They would see people that reminded them of beings that weren't from here because they had this whole beautiful energy about them, things of that nature. So I always wanted to travel there, but I never knew about the giant rock part. Until I met my friend Athena, who I've known for, uh, I think, close to 20 years. Now, Athena goes way back. If you ever want to know anyone in the whole metaphysical UFO world, she knows them. It's amazing. She spoke at the UN on UFOs. This is how ingrained this woman was over the years. So she had been telling me stories that, how she was, uh, her and her husband were very close to George and his wife. And that when George uh, took over the airport, so there was, a, there was a man named Frank Kreitzer who ran the Giant Rock Airport. It's a dirt airport for little planes. That's basically what it is. And this, this minor guy, Frank, he dynamited underneath the rock, dug it out, and that's where he made his home. Right. So that's why they call it Giant Rock. It's the biggest freestanding boulder on Earth, so they say. Hmm. And so he lived under there. And when he passed away, George knew him. George wanted a metaphysical life. So he moved. He bought the airport, moved his wife and daughters underneath the rock, which I'm sure they were not too happy about. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um so George used to have his friends uh, over. One was Bob Short, and who was a channeler, and the other was my friend Athena, who back then was known as Denise Ebersol, right, and her husband. But Denise said, I was there when he began channeling space beings, and he would channel different ones all the time. Right. And I have all those transcripts from all of those. I put a few in the actual book uh, from the Integratron archives. And then one night he totally went into a whole nother thing and a, and a voice took him over and he was the very first person to channel Ashtar. Right. So these channelings are going on for about a year. And then one night he sleeps outside on a cot because they're in the middle of the desert and it's hot. And he said, if somebody approaches at night, the dogs go barking and wakes him up. And all of a sudden he saw a man, 
he just woke up on his own accord, saw a man approaching, the dogs were calm, and he got up to greet the man. He introduced himself as Saul Gonda, and um, he, uh, he said he was 5'6", had short blonde hair, and was wearing a silver suit, and his ship was like hovering behind him a ways, and he said, I would like to give you a tour of my ship. And George, George was very fascinated because he did work for Howard Hughes and um, uh, Douglas Aircraft, etc. So he went in and um, was in there for, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. And Salgonda, we're not quite sure when this happened or how it happened, but I believe it was probably a download later on how to build a place called the Integratron, which is a cell rejuvenation machine. This is the same technology that Valiant Thor came with to share with our government. These are like around the same time. This is a little earlier than Valiant Thor in 57, right? And so George had this, he, you know, he had the blueprints and so he, had to figure out a way to raise money to do it. Um, it is said that uh, Hughes gave him 20 grand to start. And so he thought, well, I'm going to have uh, UFO conventions. And they did a snail mail phone calling campaign, started getting people to come out. They would have people who were having face-to-face -face contact with human extraterrestrials. And it ballooned up into about 10,000 people in its heyday because it went on for well over 20 years, right? And strangely enough, when I went out to the Integratron for the first time, it was with Dr. Frank Strangers because they had asked us to do a retro UFO convention that they were just starting. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Frank informed all of us that he used to MC those original conventions, which I had no idea so I had another source with him to learn all about what was going on during that time. And Bob Short was smart enough. He took videotapes, like, uh, like, you know, the old cameras with the big VHS tapes in them. Oh, yes, yes. And he filmed it. And I have one of those tapes. Wow. Right. And he did a book of the people that spoke at Giant Rock and did a little thing about it. Not like a, you know, a book that he put together himself, just paper and pages. Uh, so it's not something you can buy online. And anyway, he, uh, so throughout the years, uh, he started building the Integratron. And when it was 95% done, um, Salgonda told them not to turn it on, that the people of the earth weren't ready. And then George had a, had a heart attack, uh, passed away. Denise and her husband were, uh, they uh, went with his wife, uh, who then, uh, it wasn't Eva. Eva had already passed. Uh, uh, Doris. Doris was his second wife mm -hmm. uh, with two R's. That's how I remember it. Doris with two R's. And um, so... Uh, and Denise said when she, when they were there in the hospital and, uh, they were with his body, 
that she heard him say in his head, wow, this place is fantastic, <laughs> you know, meaning where he was and that he was in a good place. So um, so it changed hands. It went to, I think, Emil Canning, and it just was sort of like locked up. Nothing ever happened. It became dilapidated. The Carl sisters bought it from Mr. Canning. And they uh, fixed it up, refurbished it, and now it's beautiful and pristine. And people can go online and make appointments to uh, go have a sound bath there and learn about the Integratron. I want everyone to know that in the at the end of each chapter, you have all the information and things to do at right. each spot. So make sure that you read that because you can't just drive to the Integratron and walk in. Right. If you don't have an appointment, you're not going to get in. And if you really want to go to Giant Rock for the experience, hire the historian, Barbara Harris. It doesn't cost much to take you out at night to Giant Rock and you sit, just sit in some chairs and look through night vision binoculars and she'll give you the whole history on Giant Rock. And, uh, you know, it's a giant crystal cachet in that area. As a matter of fact, next to Giant Rock, there's a crystal mound made of all quartz crystal. Ah, fascinating. And, yes. And the Integratron was built, was they, he was told by Salgana to build it there because there was a gigantic quartz crystal cachet below. Amazing. As you say, all of the, the, uh, the contact information, uh, the sources, things to do. These are all included in this uh, wonderful, the UFO hotspot compendium. And um, you mentioned earlier Bradley Ranch, which is just outside of Sedona, later called uh, Galactic Park. So this yes. gentleman buys, what, 140 acres at $200 an acre yeah. in uh, 1960, imagine. And um, imagine. I guess his initial thought is, oh, we can film Westerns here. So again, there's that movie. That's right. Right. There's that movie. That's one right. One of Elvis's films was uh, they built the set there. And That's right. That's right. And um, I believe now he worked on a lot of the Westerns that shot in the Sedona. Right. Um, uh, there was a Joan Crawford Western. There were a lot of things. So he was trying to think of ways where he could make money from that ranch. And so he would allow people to film on his ranch. Uh, the Elvis Presley, they built a whole facade. So that stayed there and was able to be reused. And it, it was there for, oh, I think 20 years until it just sort of fell apart. Right. Um, and then he started, okay, well, we give tours of the ranch. His kids, when they were young, his kids would take people out, you know, into the wilderness and that kind of thing. He built a ranch house there which you know was modest you know on his property which is right next door to a homestead house which is said to be the oldest structure in sedona right right and um so these houses are literally like uh, a one minute walk from each other and in between them is a tree an alligator tree which is a portal which i'll tell you about in a little bit but Sorry for the interruption, Craig. I'm going to stop yeah. you right there. That'll be our, our cliffhanger. Uh, okay. We'll get back to the alligator tree, the portal, the Bradley Ranch. Craig Bradshaw. Uh, sorry, the Bradshaw Ranch. Coming back uh, with Craig Campobasso right after these. <laughs> Don't go away. 
It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Craig Campobasso stays with us. Again, the UFO hotspot compendium. It's a lot of fun, and uh, you learn a lot as well. So again, it's a great, it's a great idea. If you, you want to plan a, a lengthy road trip or a bunch of road trips, and uh, yes. visit some of the, the UFO hotspots across not just the United States, but uh, Canada, Canada, of course, Falcon Lake yes. in uh, Manitoba is, yes. is included, which is a, a great story. Uh, some of yes. these are a little maybe harder to get to than others, but... Uh, that that one is a hard one to get mm, to. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, you may want to rent a helicopter or a, yeah. a plane or something. However... Well, it's a two-hour horseback ride to get in there where he was. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, let's go back to um, the ranch. Bradshaw. Bradshaw yeah. Ranch. And um, so this guy buys up 140 acres in 1960. Um the uh, next to the, this modest ranch house that he builds is another structure, which is the oldest house in Sedona, or the oldest yes. structure in Sedona, Arizona. Yes. In between is what you call this alligator tree, which I've never heard yeah. of an alligator tree. Yeah, it's because its bark looks like an alligator hide. Ah, okay. Yeah. And this is supposedly a, a, a portal. It's a portal. That's what his wife, Linda, said. Uh so um, I'll just backtrack for one second. Yeah. So he he started doing uh, he started like hiring cowboys and things like that out of uh, other states and in Phoenix and things like that to come up and do these uh, Western shows where people would then come to the ranch. They'd have cookouts. Uh, he uh, then built a saloon in the front of his ranch where they played music and and all of that kind of fun stuff. And interestingly enough, one of my friends who was a part of Dr. Frank's group lives in Sedona, and she worked at the Bradshaw Ranch when all of this was happening. So I've been hearing these Bradshaw Ranch stories for a very long time. And she told me the first time that they were doing the Western show, that a flying saucer went right across, right over the show, just like that. And everyone was shocked and amazed. Um, another story is Bob came out in the middle of the day and a craft landed right in front of the property. He made an about face, went inside the house, and he said, I, uh, I don't want anything to do with these things. I don't, you know, he was... He was kind of terrified of it. And if you knew what the energy was like there, you would understand. I've been there twice. Everything in your body tells you to get out. Wow. Right? It's so different and strange. And it's it's all of, you know, different things. Now, with this portal tree, I was explaining it to a psychic. And she, she believes that it's a, a sort of like a double helix vortex. It's a negative and a positive where one goes clockwise and the other goes counterclockwise. And that's why they're experiencing all of uh, the good and bad things that were happening on the ranch. So um, there was one night where her son and his girlfriend were staying in the homestead house. They saw a light. 
uh, bright light, looked out the windows, and there was a bunch of grays running around the front of the property. Wow. They were terrified and they were looking through all the windows. All they want, all he wanted to do was get his girlfriend and her little daughter to safety to the big house, right? And, um, and when the coast was clear, they ran to the big house, woke up his mother, and uh, they went in the kitchen. She made some coffee. They were sitting in the living room. And then a gray walked right by the living room window. Linda was really into this, and she wasn't afraid of it. She ran to the door, opened the door. She wanted to see it, like, close up with her eyes, but it vanished, right? Mm-hmm. So... Another time at night, the dogs are barking crazily and they go outside to see what it is. And they're barking, looking up at something that they're surrounding and they hear this heinous hissing and it frightened them. So they got the dogs in the house and the next morning when they went out there, they found reptilian footprints. Oh my. Right. And then, um, some nights they would, uh, well, one particular night, uh, they heard something was going on with the trucks outside. There was like this noise and they went outside and something was rocking them and squeezing one of the trucks like a can. And they started photographing it and they actually got the energy of this blue light and this white strange light around it. And so that's when she would feel that these negative entities would come through that portal. But she also felt that there were angelic ones that came through and she believed that they were also protecting them as well. Now, here's the strangest and the coolest thing about it. When you're there, and the first time I went, because you need a four-wheel drive to get back in there, you have to hire a guide I do have a guide in the book that will take you out there. Right. Because again, it's kind enough. of remote. You're suggesting. Yeah, you, no, you, you, yeah. you, can't, you can't even do it with a GPS. Wow. It's, it's like, it's just you, it's in the middle of nowhere. Right. And it's out there a ways. Right. And uh, so the first time I went with my friend who worked there, we had to park the car. And we had to hike in 40 minutes to get there. And that entire time I'm hiking in, I'm very sensitive. I could feel all of the dimensions like wobbling and I could feel things looking at me and I could feel, I felt like I was being watched the entire time. And all I wanted to do was turn around and and go back. And and I remember I kept saying to my friend, you know, mind you, she's hiking. She's in her 70s, right? Here's me. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I think let's just turn around and go back. This is taking too long. No, come on, come on, right? And anyway, we get out there and I'm able to see it, what it looks like from afar. And, um, you know, you can walk around the whole property. It is fenced off with just like some thin barbed wire and that kind of thing. Um, can you see that from the fence line? Can you see the the house and the everything. tree? You, you can see everything from there. You can see the windmill. You can see the horse corrals where the Bigfoot always was. The windmill of and- missing time. The windmill of missing time. Many people I got too close to that windmill had lots of missing time. 
as well. And there were some uh, Japanese reporters that went out to the ranch many years ago. And one of him, what, they, they didn't know where he was. And he went and sat by the windmill and they, you can see from the house, the windmill clearly. And if anybody is sitting near the windmill, you would know it. And they didn't see anything. And they were really worried. They started doing a search for him. And then he suddenly appears and he just had this missing time and he had no idea where he was, what happened, anything of that nature, right? You know, but, as you're telling me this story, Craig, I'm thinking, you know, when you go to a, like a nice Thai restaurant, you got a hankering for some, you know, spicy food. And on the menu, they put like the number of peppers, you know, those hot right. peppers. Yeah. <laughs> you should have some kind of an indication in this book. Like this, this trip for the, for the Bradshaw Ranch to me is right. not for the squeamish or the faint of heart. So no. Maybe that should get like no. three hot peppers or something next to it. Yeah, definitely should. It, it's a place you would want to visit definitely in the daytime. But um, the guide will take you out there at night if that's mm. what you want to do as well. Uh, I don't know if I would want to do that at night, um, because there's so many different things out there that happen in the nighttime. So, uh, but the thing is, is that the, like I said, the dimensions are like, uh, like that. So back then they had the videotape cameras and when they would film something or look through the viewfinder, what was in the viewfinder was not what was in front of them. Like one time they, they filmed the dinosaur. Another time the son saw some kind of creature he can't even explain, right? It was like on two kind of legs, uh, strange. I forget exactly what it looks like, but it's in Tom Dongo's book. I put, uh, I put the sources at the end of each chapter. So yeah. if people really want to learn more, they can go right to the book. Yeah, suggested and, reading list, which is great. And, yes, exactly. And, and all of that. And I mean, it was just fascinating all the things that they saw and, uh, and including big girl that Linda ended up naming her is our albino Sasquatch that, um, they started seeing Bigfoot prints around the corrals where the horses were. And so she thought, well, let me put some food out and see what happens. And she put fruits and vegetables on a plate, set it up on a, a, a post uh, where the corrals were. And the next morning she went out there and uh, all the food was gone and sticks and stones were left as a gift. And they went through this and then she would always see the footprints in the dirt. And then one morning she went out and she saw that she had laid down on her side and made an impression of her body to show her that she was pregnant. Oh, wow. And then she started, uh, not long after that, she started seeing the big footprints and then the little, the little Bigfoot footprints, <laughs> right? Uh, but they did catch her with a ship above her uh, through uh, the viewfinder once, right? I Which Skinwalker Ranch has nothing on the Bradshaw mm, Ranch. No, but Skinwalker has something underground. Mm. There's something underground. I mean, even before the TV show and even before I read uh, Knapp's book, I was just like, there's something underground there. 
and it ain't good. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, we just have a few minutes left. I, I, yeah. I just want to, because we've covered off, you know, the Yucca Valley in California, Sedona and Arizona. Um, I want to talk about Aurora, Texas. And um, mm. this this goes way back, 1897, some kind of a an airship is the way they described it back then. Yeah. I mean, in the, in, the, in the newspaper, they talk about this event you know, yeah. it crashes, and they give the pilot of this strange craft a Christian burial. They do. Tell me, but you can actually they see do. the headstone, right? You, well, the original headstone, I can't remember if it disintegrated. I think it disintegrated and fell apart because it was, uh, I have a picture of it in the book. Hmm. And then somebody replaced it with the same, uh, they had etched out the flying saucer and put on it, and that was the headstone. Then somebody stole that. And so now it's just a stone, and people leave gifts like coins and whatever they want to leave. So that's where you know where the burial site is now. Uh, but if you can imagine in a town in the late 1800s where there was only a little over 300 people and they're farming, uh, everyone knows each other, and uh, they've never, uh, I mean, I don't even know what their concept of, did they think about life out elsewhere in the universe? Did they think about ships? Did they see flying saucers ever? Mm -hmm. Did they, we don't know, but they call them airships because they kind of look like, uh, not a tic-tac, but like Almost a like a like a blimp in, yeah. in a sense, but it was a craft, not a blimp. Right. Right. So um, in Texas, I put all the statistics in the book. There were a lot of sightings in Texas over that time. And uh, so this one morning at 6 a.m., they see all the farmers out doing their land. They see this thing like shooting down, goes over the town square, hits Judge Proctor's uh, water tower explodes and uh, Judge Proctor's out of town for a few days. And so everyone goes rushing over there. And um, there's, there's two stories that the pilot was dead when they arrived. And there's another story that they took him into the barn and tried to revive him, but he died later that afternoon. But the actual things that were written about in the paper were that it, this being had lizard skin, had black eyes, and black blood, and was wearing a skin-tight silver suit. Wow. Right? And you have to remember back then, there, wasn't, there weren't UFO cover-ups. There weren't any of these things that we have today. So whatever they saw... They reported it in the paper, and there's many different uh, articles that were written about that particular incident. So I would assume that this small town, no matter, even though that little being looked different than we did, that they thought it was best to give him a Christian burial because that's what they would have done with one of their own. And they put him in the cemetery and that was it. But, you know, it's like, I think I even wrote a line in the book. I, I mean, what would that sermon have been like? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yes. I mean, that would have been fascinating to know what 
what that sermon was and uh, that kind of thing. So was over any, the years. Sorry, Craig, was there any consideration giving to uh, exhuming the body? Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure. I can't remember who it was. I, I have it in the book. Somebody re sort of brought the case to the forefront, and it or Jim became, Mars, maybe Jim. It Mars. was was Jim, but there was somebody else uh, as well. Jim has a really good documentary yeah. that people can see. That's on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. Um, and so he was really big in that case. But there was somebody else, I think, that sort of brought that case back out into the forefront. And that's when people started coming in and they were going, it wasn't Jim, it was somebody else. They wanted to exhume the body and they were getting lawyers to do that. And, and there was a whole big thing with the cemetery. No, you're not. And all of that. So they actually started posting policemen on the Aurora aliens gravesite because they didn't want anybody coming in and just digging his body up. Um, it said somewhere over time the body was moved somewhere else so that no one would know where it was buried. But the uh, the TV show um, with Bill Burns, UFO Hunters, when that was on, they went out there, they did the uh, radar penetrating in the ground, and it showed that something was there, but it was concaved, so they couldn't really say if it was a body or not, right? Fascinating. So, yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. I, I mean, that's that right there is such a cool story. Oh, it is. It's amazing. And that's just uh, one stop of many. Uh, we just, we haven't even scratched the surface. We talked I know. about three of them, all of them in the UFO Hotspot Compendium. Uh, fantastic idea. Again, just a, a great... Um, way to plan a series of road trips across the United States and Canada uh, with a UFO sort of bent in mind and uh, fun for the whole family. But some of them, again, you know, not for the squeamish, well, not for the faint yeah. of heart. Yeah, maybe you want yeah, to well, visit scary. at any time. <laughs> Craig, <laughs> great meeting you face-to-face uh, -face finally and uh, yes. speaking with you. Thank you so much and congratulations on a fantastic book. Thank you so much. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.